Okay, Nugent News Network on the air, and today's episode is about the Sunday Tribune, as is typical. Um, so to be honest with you, I haven't read all these articles in full. Um, so you'll have to bear with me, because I'm kind of reading them aloud. But it's 7 in the morning on a Sunday, and I'm tired. So, uh, there's a piece in here about the best Wi-Fi extenders, and I have some issues with this Wi-Fi thing. So, um, they all have screwy names. One is called the TP-Link, and then they've got a model number. That's the best one, and I'll just tell you the best one. So... I'm not sure what's going on with the Wi-Fi because some I have several computers and some of them don't seem to have an issue and others do. So I don't know what's going on. Could be hardware, could be my stuff. I don't know. Now, uh, Northwestern University's Tribal Constitution Project will catalog hundreds of indigenous documents. Now, I didn't know the indigenous had documents, actually. Um... Let's see. Tribal Constitution Project. There's a professor named Beth Redbird, who apparently is a indigenous of indigenous heritage. Uh, oh, these are constitutions of North American tribes from 1934 to 2020. Oh, well, I thought this was like, you know, before the. Evil white men came. That's not as interesting to me. So that's going in the garbage. Um, now we go through the opinion section. And there's a letter here about how the founders would not have approved of what the current Supreme Court is doing. It says George Young of Evanston, the new conservative Supreme Court majority is now really stretching its legs and feeling its oats. As end-of-term gifts, these justices have given us a few new and different prescriptions for establishing the disunited states of America. Thanks, guys. That's just what we needed right now. So much for judicial sagacity and wisdom. If these particular technocrats had been around 250 years ago, none of them would have been able to get past the first round of auditions to join the cast of the Founding Fathers. Well, certainly that's the case with the two black justices <laughs> uh, and the women justices. So, point, point taken there. But um, I love when people are able to discern what the Founding Fathers would have done. Now, that is a lot of constitutional law, frankly. What was the intent of the Founders? But these, you know, they used to call them dead white males, and now the progressives have enlisted them as defenders of abortion, which I don't know, you know. I guess it wasn't as verboten back in the old days up until a certain point at least, called the quickening, as 
the pro-life folks would like it to be in terms of conception. So, uh, and the other thing, though, is the, actually, the Articles of Confederation were the first instrument that uh, was constitutional, foundational, and it was the disunited States of America. And then they reluctantly became a federal government, but you still had, in, a, in the Constitution of the United States, a lot of state autonomy. What this fellow George fails to understand is that that's exactly what the Supreme Court is trying to restore, is the uh, more autonomy and more power reserved to the states, as in the Tenth Amendment, which says that any any power specifically not specifically enumerated to the federal government are left to the states. And what they're saying is we don't see anywhere in the Constitution, either in the original uh, document or the Bill of Rights or subsequent amendments, any business that the federal government has in getting involved with this. So therefore it would be left to the states. So... Now, Clarence Page writes a column, uh, again, trying to figure out what Washington would say about January 6th. He says, Washington tried to warn us. Now, let's see. Where does he bring Washington into the column? Oh, here we go. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Well, Washington hated political parties. That's for sure. He warned about political parties. He feared that when Americans voted according to party loyalty rather than common interests, it would foster a spirit of revenge and enable the rise of cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men who would usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Boy, he got that right. That's a keeper. I, too, hate political parties. Now, here's an article on jobs and work. Planning your unretirement. So some people who retire uh, are unretiring. Because it's a hobby type of a re-engagement for some people. Here's a woman who worked for the state of Illinois, and she's worked as a cashier, a tutor, a restaurant hostess, and a tour guide. And if something gets screwy, she's out. If she gets stressed, she's out. 20 to 25% of adults over 65 are either working or looking for work, compared with 10% in 1985. And that's because nobody has a pension anymore. You know. Now... This particular person, her husband is also retired, but he's an artist. He uses our living room as his studio. Ever try staying at home all day with an artist? It's no picnic. 
Many workers 60 and older will tell you they want to work for the health insurance. Well, once you get to Medicare, then you don't have to worry about that. Older, other older workers simply need the money, raises his hand. Um, that's the reality for me, says Patricia Bruno, retired hairstylist. I don't have much of a retirement package, and I want to wait until I can collect Social Security. Oh, good for her. I already took mine. So here's some tips to find jobs when you're older. Don't run from your age. Embrace it. Employers who interview older adults are looking for employees who are stable, dependable, and mature. If you show up for an interview dressed in clothes from H&M and filled with stories of your weekend drinking adventures, you're probably projecting the wrong image. Keep the resume job application or job application brief. No one wants to read War and Peace when they're looking for a store greeter. During the interview, discuss your career as a whole. Use specifics when discussing the last several years. Use anecdotes and stories to illustrate your ability to adapt to any situation. Highlight your willingness to work as a member of the team. Suggest your maturity is a positive for the employer and the way you can benefit the team. Hopefully younger coworkers will see someone who projects strength and wisdom and let's face it, has no interest in taking their jobs. Use younger references when possible. It will illustrate your willingness to work with people younger than you and will help you boost your overall image. Well, those are good tips, so I'm going to keep those. So bear with me while I highlight what I refer to as writing worth reading. Now, I did my first clubhouse room yesterday. I may have mentioned that. So any of you who are not on clubhouse and want to be on clubhouse, well, let me know. Uh, it's about how to be a better writer. So I'm going to use that as an example of writing worth reading. Clip out of the trip today. How to find an inspiring business purpose by Martin Zwilling from Inc. Magazine. One is the desire to leave a lasting legacy. Two, challenge yourself to deliver a technical innovation. Three, take this opportunity to travel and learn. Four, be driven to reduce personal hardship and suffering. Five, accept a challenge to share a unique gift and skill. Now, I think that's more for these millennial types who need to have some mission or purpose or whatever other than just making a living. Making a living has always sufficed for me. Now, here's an article which I haven't read yet, so I'll read along with you. It's called The Power to Change Minds. If you've ever tried to change somebody's mind, good luck with that. 
Changing your mind or someone else's is a complex process done through assimilation or accommodation, says David McRaney, author of How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion, and host of the Science Podcast, You Are Not So Smart. I like that. When the brain is confronted with novel information that generates cognitive dissonance, we tend to assuage that conflict by either updating our interpretations, information, or updating the models of reality that we generated to make sense of it. Assimilation is when the brain takes the new information and fits it into an existing model. Accommodation is when we acknowledge that our existing model is incomplete or incorrect. The brain updates the model so that the novel information is no longer an anomaly, but a new layer of understanding. Well, you can see why people are reluctant to change their minds because they have to develop a whole new model of how the world works. I've had to do that many times in my life, and it's unsettling. The easiest way to understand how it happens is to think of a child who's learning how the world works and building complex neural structures. For example, if they see a dog for the first time and are told the word for it, the brain creates a category that defines non-humans walking on four legs as dogs. If later they see a horse, many say dog. The brain is going through assimilation. Once corrected, the brain shifts into accommodation. To expand your mind, you literally have to create a new category in which horse and dog exist. It's sort of a taxonomy. It's a taxonomy exercise. You have to change your mind, keeping what you already know. So you literally are changing your mind when you change your mind. You're changing the architecture of your brain's infrastructure. Wow, this is good stuff. Everyone's mind is filled with beliefs, attitudes, and values. Uh, beliefs are defined as an estimation of your confidence in the truth or falsity of a piece of information. Attitudes are positive or negative evaluations of something. And values are an estimation of what is most important and most worth our time. I would say values are more than that. I remember when I left AMA, I was looking for a new job, and I tried to be executive director of the Chicago Dental Society, and they asked me what my values were. I had to look it up in the dictionary because I didn't have any, you know. I kind of lost the old Catholic faith when I was about 17. And then I went to Marquette. <laughs> Evan's scholar values uh, replaced my Catholic faith. <laughs> that was essentially a value vacuum. <laughs> so uh, I had to look it up and I thought, hey, you know, that's what religion used to be. So... I've since developed many, many values, but at the time I didn't have any. So that's what I would call values is more or less your version of right and wrong, you know, whether they be the famous Dan Quayle family values or, or what have you, as in mission vision values, for those of you who are in the strategic planning game. Um, to better understand how someone can have beliefs and attitudes that are opposite of yours, McRaney, when we, we, this is certainly a crucial topic because we basically have two countries now based on beliefs and attitudes that are opposite of the other side. 
McBrainy likes to give the example of the dress debate of 2015. Some people saw the dress as being black and blue. Others saw it as white and gold. If you saw the dress one way, you couldn't see it the other. People were getting into arguments. They were saying, there must be something wrong with you if you don't see it how I do. Turns out the photo was overexposed, and how you saw the dress was related to the amount of time you'd spent in sunlight versus artificial light. Wow. The more time the person had spent exposed to artificial light, which is predominantly yellow, the more likely they saw the dress as being black and blue. Their brains were unconsciously processing the overexposure as being artificially lit, removing the yellow light and leaving the bluer shades. For, for a person who had spent more time exposed to natural light, the opposite was true. Their brains subtracted the blue light and saw the dress as white and gold. Wow. We're not aware that our brains do this. We are just on the receiving end of the process. Whoever we is and wherever we is, is that the soul or what? What is amazing is that your life choices lead to what sort of assumptions you see. When you meet people who disagree with you on certain topics, it's important to realize that you're unaware of all the forces that took place to create their conclusions. Someone else's beliefs, attitudes, and values are made up of a culmination of years of experiences and behaviors. People can, can and do change their minds for a variety of reasons, and one of those is due to persuasion, such as one-to-one -one conversation, a learning experience, or media messaging. There you go. McRaney says successful persuasion involves leading a person along in stages, helping them better understand their own thinking. You can't persuade another person to change their mind if that person doesn't want to do so. There you go. It's like hypnotism, right? You can't hypnotize somebody against their will. So they say. I don't know if you can hypnotize people at all. Persuasion is mostly encouraging people to realize change is possible. All persuasion is self-persuasion. People change or refuse based on their own desires, motivations, and internal counter-arguing. And by focusing on these factors, argument becomes more likely to change minds. Wow. If you get into an argument with someone and your only goal is to prove that you are right and they are wrong, that guarantees that neither side of the argument would understand the higher truth, which is why you see it differently. Instead, McCraney says it's important to share your intentions up front. For example, you may be worried that someone is being misled or you believe that there are other choices that could produce better results. Not only does that keep you on solid ethical ground, but it also increases your chance of success. If you don't, people will assume your intentions. If they believe that your position is that they are gullible or stupid or deluded or in the wrong group or a bad person, then of course they will resist and the facts will now be irrelevant. When you try to change someone else's mind, you should be open to having your own mind changed as well. McRaney suggests asking yourself, am I right about everything? Which you're not. Most people would say no. But then ask yourself, what, if I, what am I wrong about? Suddenly it becomes very difficult to question the answer. Or suddenly it becomes very difficult, a, a very difficult question to answer, I should say. 
Easy for me to say. If you know that you must be wrong about something and you're not aware of what those things are, the next question is, how do, can I go about discovering? If you don't have a clear answer for that, that means that maybe you are operating in a way that doesn't allow you to discover your areas of ignorance or conflict. Well, that was definitely writing worth reading, I would say. So maybe I'll have more luck changing people's minds. The High Court, now this is under news briefing, the High Court, uh, High Court's marshal requests enforcement of anti-picketing laws because the Supreme Court is under siege because of all these rulings. I suppose they must have known that. And let's see. What else? Three Kentucky law enforcement officers were killed and five wounded uh, recently. I think this was yesterday. The perp is Lance Stores, 49. This is in Ap the ha Appalachian Hills, so I imagine he's what we would call white trash. A police dog was also killed. Uh, Stores surrendered after negotiations that included his family members. It was related to a domestic violence situation. Man. Let's see what else we got here. It's rough out there, folks. Very rough. Here's the thing about workplace culture, which I'm just going to skim this. Give people what they want is the way to keep people around. They want the culture. They want benefits. They want to customize their benefits. Okay, it looks like about the size of it. Um, there's a thing here about Notre Dame, for those of you who are fans now, those of you who are football fans know that USC and one other major college football team from the Pac-10, they're joining the Big Ten. I think it's UCLA. That's amazing. Oh, yeah, USC and UCLA. And then they're talking about the potential for uh, Notre Dame to get involved with a conference, which I don't know that they ever will because they make so much money. They're, they're such a powerful brand. One of the biggest questions is what happens to Notre Dame. <laughs> One of the biggest questions is what happens with Notre Dame, the only college football program that doesn't need to share with others because it's freaking Notre Dame. NBC covers all their home games in a deal that runs through 2025. They've had a national following for more than a century and have been doing just fine as an independent. 
making it to the college football playoff without having to win a conference title. They are obligated, they have a deal with the ACC, the Atlantic Coast Conference. They're obligated to uh, join ACC as a football team if they decide to give up their independent status before 2036. Clemson is in that conference and Miami is in that conference. Uh, if they bolt for the SEC, the future of the conference would be in se severe jeopardy. The obvious choice for Notre Dame would be the Big Ten. That's for sure. Times change, and Notre Dame soon might have no choice but to join a conference. The SEC wouldn't take Notre Dame. No, Big Ten would be the place. And I don't see any compelling reason why they'd have to join. Anyway, not everybody who listens is a football fan. So that's it for today, folks. Pretty slim pickings, but pickings nonetheless. Uh, live long and prosper and be careful out there. And we'll talk to you again probably uh, next weekend, if not before. Bye-bye.